0: This is our lesson number one of this lesson, Building Sound Doctrine. Of course, we've written a book of the same title, but these are four critical lessons on Building Sound Doctrine. And first and foremost, we covered this subject called teaching versus preaching. And if you're just kind of new to church or uh, aren't an astute student of the word, you think teaching and preaching is synonymous, but they are two very totally different skill sets that accomplish two totally different things, and that's what we want to cover in this lesson. As I have been able to travel the world, I haven't been to Asia yet, but, uh, or Australia, but I've been to Europe, I've been to South America, I've been to Central America, or Mexico, I've been to uh, Africa many, many times, and Europe many times now, you see that the greatest need in the church is teaching. It's not more preaching. We need teaching. Dr. Sumrall said, and by my humble estimation, Dr. Lester Sumrall was probably the greatest missionary of the last thousand years, period. Uh, before he passed away, he had preached the gospel in over 100 nations in the world, which is 50% of the world, and he established over 70 or 80 churches in his lifetime, which is impressive. And in, in his travels, and he was in a different country two or three times a month, in his lifetime, one of the things he said before he passed away was, he said, what the world needs now is, he said, we, the church needs 10,000 teachers, and we needed them yesterday. I've heard, I heard him say that so many times. We need 10,000 teachers, and we need them yesterday because he could see the dire need for sound doctrine in the body of Christ. The Bible says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You don't communicate knowledge through preaching. You communicate motivation and conviction. But it is through teaching that you communicate knowledge. So let's look at some verses here that distinguish biblically there is a tremendous difference between teaching and preaching. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 says, And Jesus went about all of Galilee teaching in the synagogues, And preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Real quick, we see two things. He was teaching in churches and preaching the gospel outside of churches. And healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. He was healing everywhere he went. He didn't teach everywhere he went. He taught in the synagogues, which is where the hungry saints gather on the Sabbath. But in the open airs, he would preach. Those are like your evangelistic crusades. He didn't teach on the hillsides. He preached from the hillsides. He taught in the buildings. And then he would teach his disciples in private, in a room, in a house, over dinner. And then he would heal everywhere he went. Acts fifteen thirty five. Paul also and Barnabas continued at Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. You see, Paul and Barnabas were adept at both teaching and preaching. One of the things I see as I travel the world, you either have teachers or you have preachers, but you hardly have anybody that can do both. And those that teach could probably ask the Lord to help them preach a little bit better. And those that preach, I know God Almighty helped them to slow down and do some teaching. I I think perhaps one of the more, what's the proper word? I'm at a loss. It is such a hurtful thing to have a pastor who can do nothing but preach. Because it ends up producing a highly motivated church, but they don't know what to do. They're fired up. They got a jetpack, but they got no direction. It's like having a jet airplane without any airfoils or flaps to steer. Sails without a rudder. Preaching produces a sail. Teaching produces the rudder. And you need to have both. Paul also and Barnabas were both teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. Acts twenty eight thirty one says, Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So there again, we see the, the apostles were teaching and preaching. And I, I use this to build the proof that they are two separate things. They are two separate things. Now, in general terms, I'm called a preacher, uh, but I probably only do 10% preaching. I'm a pastor, and I do a lot of teaching. But every preacher, every minister is called a preacher. Preacher? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in the Upper Cumberland. Preacher? How you doing, preacher? And I, 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 ter- I receive it as a term of honor, but I also, well, if you want to be specific, I'm more of a teacher. <laughs> how you doing there, teacher? Reverend teacher? These verses clearly reveal there is a difference between preaching and teaching. The previous verses from Matthew's gospel indicate the pattern of Jesus's ministry. Teaching, preaching, and healing. The Greek word for teaching means to hold instructive discourses for the purpose of instilling doctrine. I'm going to read that again. The Greek word for teaching means to hold instructive discourses for the purpose of instilling doctrine doctrine. We see that if we are to pattern ourselves after the Lord Jesus Christ, at least one-third of our ministries should be holding instructional discourses for the sole purpose of instilling doctrine. Now, the biggest preacher in the nation, the largest church, the pastor of the largest church in the land, he said on an interview, I watched it on the internet, he said, I believe we keep churches small by emphasizing doctrine. And I said it in my heart, you're a fool and you're not worthy of the pulpit and you call yourself a pastor, but you've not studied Timothy, Timothy and Titus that references doctrine 16 times. How about the reason you have the biggest church in America is because you have zero doctrine? Because the Bible says in first or second Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine or that the word endure there means to bear a heavy burden which lets you know sound doctrine places a heavy spiritual burden upon the hearer because once you now know now you're accountable once you know now you're judged higher so people there's there's literally a spiritual burden that comes with being taught the word of god because once you know you're accountable now you can be disciplined more severely by the lord jesus you cannot plead ignorance so it only makes sense that you can build a mega church by withholding doctrine, and only providing motivation, encouragement, and and, uh, preaching. Now, some preaching can be very convicting, but what I see a lot in megachurches is neither preaching nor in uh, teaching. It's mostly just encouragement and motivational speech. And those people love it that way. That's why they flock to those churches. They vote with their attendance and their money what they want from God, and it's not the Bible. Amen. Preaching does not do this. Preaching does not hold instructional discourses for the purpose of instilling doctrine. We make the joke among preachers, uh, we make the joke even in our church, that evangelists who are the best preachers probably, evangelists have the worst doctrine. Because they can they can they they make goulash out of the scriptures and they serve it up so hot people get convicted. They take five scriptures, mispronounce half the people's names in those five scriptures and preach the fire of God and God anoints them and 30 people get born again. That's a preacher. They don't hold instructional discourses for the purpose of instilling doctrine. They motivate people to get born again and show them how wrong and cursed and sick they are and how much they need Jesus Christ. And God honors that. I mean, I, I heard one, uh, one evangelistic message. He, who was he preaching about? Oh, he was trying to tell the story of Zacchaeus, but he kept calling him Zacharias. He said, you remember that in the Bible, that little man, Zacharias? No, the Baptist Sunday school song taught me Zacchaeus was the wee little man, not Zacharias. But he just kept preaching it. And of course, the crowd was going wild. They knew he was mispronouncing it. But there was such an anointing on a a zeal for the word of God. The Holy Spirit went, uh, uh. And you know, Zacchaeus is in heaven going, I'm the wee little man. The wee little man am I. Anyway, preaching is different from teaching. Preaching means to herald, publish, and proclaim. Even the definition means loud. Proclaim, herald. When you talk about heralding, you almost think of trumpets blasting. Biblical preaching delivers short, concise bursts. And and then you've heard about long-winded preachers. Teachers can go for hours because we have so much. Preachers, if you're gonna be an accurate biblical preacher, you don't need to be preaching for an hour or an hour and a half. That's exhausting emotionally on the people. They, they can't physically handle that much hype. But you see from the biblical pattern, the, the, the sermons of Jesus Christ, only 15, 20 verses at most, 30 verses at most to 10 and 20,000 people on the hillside. Preaching is short, concise bursts of, of God's simple, and that's the key. Preaching is always very simple. It's shallow, but that doesn't mean it isn't rich. But it doesn't have time to break down Greek or tie 15 scriptures together. It's not designed to do that. When the preach comes on me, I won't even open my Bible. I'll just quote scriptures because to turn and have you turn in the Bible, we'll lose the momentum of the preach. And if you notice, most preachers on television, or if you've been in churches, they they will have they'll typically a preacher who's a preacher preacher. He knows how his gifting works. He'll say, "Let's stand for the reading of God's word," and he'll read scriptures. And that's the only time he'll go back to the word because he hits that thing at Mach 9. He doesn't have time to slow down because he'll lose the momentum, and he knows how it works. Jesus Christ would do the same thing. How many Bibles did he open in a boat preaching to the hillside? not a one. Where did he open the scriptures? Synagogues. And he was able to take his time. Short, concise bursts of God's simple, unadulterated truth. For example, and John preached. So here we have John preaching, not teaching, preaching. He's proclaiming. He's heralding. Anytime you see the word preach, don't think of a soft voice. You think of these people just fire in their eyes and a voice that's making people's bones shake. There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. What he preached is summarized in one verse. And then he would baptize people. John preached the simple message that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was coming. Very simple message. Wasn't tying together thirty-five Old Testament prophets and all their prophecies. There's one coming. He doesn't even have to explain who it is. All he says, something new. You think I'm great? I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes much less clean his feet. Next example. And they went out and preached that men should repent. Mark 6, 12. The 12 disciples preached the simple message of repentance. That's pretty simple. It's almost like Jonah. He was a a Old Testament evangelist. He just walked through Nineveh begrudgingly saying, you're all doomed, God's gonna destroy you. That's his message. He just walked through the town. You're all doomed, judgment's coming, God's gonna destroy you. He didn't exegete, which means to expound, he didn't build a topical sermon. He, he, he just preached a simple, concise message, and it was anointed because all of Nineveh repented. They even made the cows fast, and even the babies fasted to show God they were truly sorry for their wickedness. A preacher, a preacher preacher does not need a whole lot of verses to get the job done, and he doesn't need a whole lot of time. And that's where we get the term long-winded preacher because folks were excited the first 20 minutes and then God left and so their heart did well as well. So preachers gotta know, all right, I'm done. I've communicated as much as I can. But teaching is different. You can, When folks are hungry, you can teach for hours because you're unwrapping. It's like Christmas, you never get tired of unwrapping. Are there any more presents? And unwrapping. And after you pull the ribbon and unwrap, then you take the thing out of the package. Then you hold it up or you try it on and you put it together. That's like teaching. Preaching is not that. Preaching is short. It's like a bulldozer with a jet rocket behind it. Whereas teaching is more like brain surgery or muscular surgery where you re- reform the sinews and the muscles and the fibers. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Notice these sermons are very succinctly summarized with two or three words. You know, if you, you can't preach eschatology. My, my friend, Pastor Gall, over at Washington Avenue Baptist, he spent a year teaching the Revelation on Sunday nights. A year. And he said, I think I'm gonna go a little longer because I'm not done yet. 52 weeks. You can't preach eschatology. You have to take 60, 70 Sunday nights to accurately do it justice. And even then, you've exhausted the subject. The people have all had all they can have. You have to hit pause and come back two years later and refresh it again. The simple gospel message of salvation through Christ was preached. Next point, straightway, he preached Christ in the synagogues. What did he preach? He is the Son of God. Very simple message. Paul preached the simple message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, we, we hopefully we're seeing over and over again, preaching is short, concise, simple messages. I don't understand pastors who can have a 30-minute sermonette on a Sunday morning. One man of God said, sermonettes produce Christianettes. I, I don't know. I mean, if, if you give me my church, if you give me a group of believers, 30 minutes just gets me going. I mean, I just, get fire, I just get started. Sunday morning is the shortest I teach. Well, actually Sunday school, but Sunday morning service, and that's usually an hour, hour and five minutes. And I only stop for your sake because we've got Sunday morning people conditioned that, you know, It's time for lunch, and they think they've done God a favor by being here for two hours. That's why on Sunday night, I can teach an hour and a half, two hours, no problem. And Wednesday night, if we really hit it, we can teach two hours, not a problem at all. And we don't stop for lack of information. We stop because I think you've had enough, and that's enough. And after the baptism that John preached, notice John's message was baptism. He was known for it. That's why he's called John the Baptist. It had nothing to do with the denominational affiliation he was a part of. There were no Baptists until the 17th century. And after revival, the Baptist came forth in America. John the Baptist was not the first Southern Baptist. I think I've told you the story about the guy when I used to work construction inspection as a baby geologist. And this guy was a um, concrete truck driver. So I'd always see him on job sites that I was inspecting work on. And he was an outspoken church of God Pentecostal tongue talker. And then I got to, as I got to know him, he's an older gentleman, found out he had moved over to the Baptist church. I said, wait, wait, you told me a couple of weeks ago, you were a tongue talker, spirit filled church of God, Holy ghost and fire. I am. So why'd you jump over to the Baptist? I jumped out of the Baptist to get among your kind. He said, well, I happen to read in the Bible. It says among all prophets, there was none greater than John the Baptist. So he said that told me the Baptists have the greatest prophets. So I want to be among the Baptists. <laughs> yes, sir. All right. If that's how you want to translate that and interpret it, so be it. He still was a great man of God. Next point, be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Simple message of forgiveness. Simple, simple message. When we were in Uganda a couple years ago, it sticks in my memory because it's when I've been able to see Brother Robert. He may be our purest evangelist in here. We had outdoor crusades, and I knew I have no business on an outdoor crusade platform because it's not my gifting. Robert would get up there and in 15 minutes preach a simple message and we have an altar call. Two, 300 people. Folks getting born again. Demons coming out of people. Uh, The team of us nine would be among the crowd at night. Among the Ugandans laying hands on people. Them falling down. Demons manifesting. Demons manifesting on the platform. And Robert would be able to do that in 15 minutes. If I were to take the platform it would turn into an hour and a half teaching session and I would thin the crowd. Because that's the difference between the giftings. And so when you know what your gifting is, use it. Be concise with it. And when you're done, step down and move away. You have to know what your, your gifting is and know when you're needed and when you're not needed. And just always be available to be needed. He seemeth, next point, he seemeth to be a setter for a four of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Very simple message. This is um, Acts 17 where he's preaching at Mars Hill. And his sermon recorded there is only about eight verses long, maybe nine verses long. He has, he has opportunity to deliver the gospel at Mars Hill, which is the, the governing body over Rome or over Athens. And he's sitting there with basically the senators, what would we call the senators, who make judgments for the region and the nation. And he is given the opportunity and he preaches. He doesn't teach. We know Paul was a great teacher. He taught all night long till somebody fell out of the, their, the upper window of sleep broke his neck, died, and Paul raised him up and said, how, how dare you ruin my sermon? Wake up in Jesus' name. We know Paul could teach, but he's given an opportunity. He preaches, it's eight, nine verses at, at length. He starts off by saying, uh, you're way too superstitious and God has commanded all people to repent and he sent his son Jesus Christ to prove that he's coming back. Very simple sermon, nine verses. He had the floor of the U.S. Senate, so to speak, and his message was nine, 10 verses long. That's it. And he got disciples out of that sermon, and he also got mocked of everything he could do, ten, ser- 10 verses long at most. Paul's sermon at Mars Hill is recorded, oh, there it is, as being only 11 verses long with the simple subject of repent. We might say you're superstitious. This is where he walks into the town and he sees the idol to the unknown God. That grieved him. He somehow worked his way into the floor of the Senate, Mars Hill, and he said, repent, repent. I've come to tell you about the God you don't know about yet. And yet in 11 verses, he got disciples. They followed after him. And some said, we'll hear more about this tomorrow. But you got to know when to turn it on and when to turn it off. In essence, the tool of preaching is used to quickly and powerfully convey the Lord's burning but simple message of the moment. And that's the key. It's burning. It's a flamethrower. You don't have to hold that thing on there forever. We're not cooking pizzas here. We're not trying to burn rock. We're just trying to singe the people preaching delivers the burning message with fervor and often fury. You don't have encouraging preaching. It is designed to get your butt in gear. And it's either get your butt in gear to the altar to repent or to get your rear end in action to do something for Jesus Christ. Now, there can be a comma exhortation that gets you encouraged and out of your rut. But if that's every sermon, you're spiritually dim. A local church does not need exhortive preaching every service unless they're just all dead. In which case you need to change the exhortation from you can make it, you can do it, to you need Jesus Christ, you're all cursed and going to hell. But once that spark of life is ignited in a person, you just need to spritz them with some gasoline and you'll set them on fire again. But any church that preaches every service, there's something not quite accurate there. By preaching, I mean this strong, loud, emotional plea It doesn't need to be the case. It delivers the burning message with fervor and often fury, motivating the listener, building their faith to a trembling fervor in their heart until some action must be taken, whether that be water baptism, repentance, salvation, healing, burning pagan relics, etc. Amen. Compare that with teaching. The original Greek word for that means to hold instructive discourses for the purpose of of instilling doctrine the number one job of the pastor from the pulpit is to instill doctrine the number one purpose of the pastor in his church pulpit not the jail pulpit not not maybe a crusade pulpit not the uh, revival pulpit but his own pulpit when he has his sheep his number one job is to instill doctrine every service now, he may take some time to exhort. He may have a burst of preaching. He may take some time to have an evangelistic service, a salvation message, because he can perceive somebody there needs to be born again. But his number one job, I would say probably 80, at least 80, uh, will or maybe 75. No less than 75% of a pastor's job should be teaching to instill doctrine because the great commission is win the lost, make disciples. And you can't make disciples preaching at them. We would say yelling at them. You make disciples through instruction and discipline. That's doctrine. If all you ever do is yell at them through preaching, you're trying to motivate them to the cross again. They've already been there. They they tagged up. They've moved on. Preaching, twofold commission. When the lost, make disciples. That's all we do. When the lost, make disciples. Now, there's a bunch of different ways we do both, but that's the bulk of the preacher's job, the, the minister's job. When the lost, make disciples. And I, even the teacher, even the pastor, he can just teach a simple sermon on Zacharias, the wee little man that he was, and folks will get born again because God moves through the teacher's office as well. Matthew 4, 23, and Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Of critical note is the fact that Jesus Christ taught in the synagogues. Synagogues are where you find those who are already faithful to God. Those that are faithful to God come to the house of God to learn more about their God. They don't come necessarily to be preached at, though if they need it, God will give it to them. But we come to learn more about God. You're in Sunday school, not Sunday revival, not revival school. You're here to be taught, to have the word of God and doctrine expounded upon you. This is what we have to do in the local church, a bulk of it. We'll have in folks who are genuine preachers because maybe in that season we need that exhortation, that, that challenge, that charge of our faith. But uh, the, greatest, the greatest ministers you'll find are those that can take people where they need to be. And those that, the greatest ministers you'll find are those that can do both, that are that multifaceted like a Swiss army knife. If you're just a one-trick pony, though, you're going to really limit what, what you're able to do. Even God said of, of deacons, elders, and bishops, they have to be apt to teach so even the evangelist has to be able to pull out a good teaching sermon and be able to teach from it and not just fall into preaching. So much of what we do in the body of Christ as ministers is oftentimes just bad behavior, bad habits. I think that's a term I used in Kenya last a uh, couple months ago, bad, bad habits, bad habits. Here in the South, we have those what we call hack preachers. And, and I've listened to them on the radio, and it's like they, they read a scripture, and then all of a sudden, ah, and, and God said, ah, ah, and, and the Lord's going to use you, ah, ah, and he said, come on to the altar of God. Will you come, my friend? Will you come? Anybody heard anything like that? It's pretty good, isn't it? Oh, that is all learned behavior. It is learned. It is church culture. And just because you have church culture doesn't mean it's good church culture. In Kenya, there's a pastor I've gotten to be friends with. I call him Pastor Froggy because his voice, uh, he'll, I'm into his impersonation. Uh, he'll say, praise God, brother. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. His voice is that hoarse because when he prays, it's a yell, it's a scream. When he preaches, it's a yell, it's a scream. You ask him to come pray. And it was so funny. We, he came down, he said... Thank you, brother. Praise the Lord. Oh, Jesus! Glory to God! Hallelujah! Praise you all! Oh, we want to thank you today! i like, well, where was the meek guy that came down front and gave a curtsy and said, Thank you, brother. It's like, culture kicked in and he went weird. <sighs> he tried to tell us a witch had put a hex on his voice. I said, "No, no, 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 no. What you need is chill out, drink some hot tea, and whisper for a while. I can cure this. This is calluses on your vocal cords because you're in a bad church culture. Amen. (laughs) Jesus Christ taught in their synagogues. When the people of God are hungry for God, you don't have to scream at them. If you do, you've, you've picked up bad habits like picking your nose and other stuff. So unlearn it. This indicates that the faithful believers often need something in addition to preaching. Bad church habits, bad ministry habits, bad habits. That's all it is is bad habits and it's learned behavior and you're always emulating your hero. That's what you do and there's nothing wrong with having a hero unless they have bad habits too. Matthew 21, 23, and when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching. Where was he? temple. And what was he doing in the temple? Teaching because the temple is where those that are hungry, those whose personal GPS always goes to the house of God, they know how to get there. They're there to learn. And they said, by what authority dost thou doest these things? And who gave us, who gave thee this authority? I, I use this one in Africa to point out because there's a bad mindset in Africa that unless I'm preaching, there's no authority. And yes, unless I'm yelling, There's no authority. But the Pharisees walked in, they heard Jesus teaching, and they could tell there was authority. There was a power just in the teaching of God's word. I'm guilty of this, as every preacher is. Sometimes we think we need to help the word of God. We think the word of God and the Holy Spirit aren't enough of a dynamic duo to speak to someone's heart. So we think sometimes hurtfully, wrongfully, we have to yell it. And I've learned not to do that. I've learned to say, I'm just going to say that again. Some of you are sinful and you need to repent. And I can say it just as chill like that. And the Holy Ghost dash those bones asunder and cause repentance to come. But we we get into these hurtful habits of thinking we have to help God and screaming it makes it more authoritative. The Lord spoke to Elijah in a still small voice. There's no more authoritative voice than the voice of God. And it was a still small voice. And it said, what are you doing here? And then it said, I'm done with you. Go anoint your replacement. Did he, God have to yell that to get his point across? Oh, no, no. And what did Elijah do? He quickly obeyed that still small voice. This, pro- this verse proves that teaching is just as authoritative as preaching. Too often the minister feels like he must yell to be heard. Solomon's wisdom rebuffs this notion. Ecclesiastes says, The words of wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. So I, I say either you don't have wisdom or your people are stupid. Either you don't have wisdom because the words of a wise man are heard silently more than, than uh, the cry of him that rules among fools. Maybe you have to yell because your church is dim and dense. I don't believe that of God's people though. So maybe you lack wisdom because if you're wise, you can just speak and it is communicated. Now again, we're not trying to diminish preaching. It is necessary And I love it when it gets on me because literally when the preach, I'm so used to methodically teaching when the preach gets on me, it's literally like being on the back of a jet ski and I'm just hanging on and I can't let go of the thing. And I'm hoping I make it to shore or something slows down and I keep my shorts on, you know, because if you ever used to jet ski on the old jet skis, if you fell off, the jet got you right from here down. It could take swimsuits and flesh off. When the preach comes on me, I love it because it's like, I'm not in charge of this. I don't operate this. This is whoa, nelly But at the same time, if that's all you do, it could just be learned behavior. Just like some teaching is dead because it's not anointed, some preaching is dead because it's not God. Just because you can yell doesn't mean it's God. Just because you can preach doesn't mean it's God. Uh, uh, Anyway, so much of it is just emotional hype. Teaching has the power to stir people up. Luke 23, 5 says... And they were there more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people teaching. Notice this verse. Even the Pharisees recognize that teaching has the ability to move and motivate and stir and kindle and and excite people. And they were upset because he he was stirring up all of jewelry, all all the Jews, not jewelry. Uh, If you're from Middle Tennessee, it's the same, jewelry. (laughs) We went down to the flea market. I bought my wife some pretty jewelry. Well, no, this is mean all of uh, Jewishness, all of the Jews among the Romans, among the Roman occupied territory. Jew- jewelry. And if you write this on your spelling bee, you, you'll get wrong because this is not how you spell jewelry either. It's just helping middle Tennessee culture a little bit. Beginning from Galilee to this place, often Jesus Christ would preach to the multitudes and then disciple. Teach the disciples in great depth and private. So notice that. Luke 24 there. At the beginning of Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So what we see here is Jesus would go out, he'd preach the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the meek, blessed are those that are persecuted, blessed, uh, blessed, blessed, blessed are the peacemakers. And that's, a, that's the Sermon on the Mount is actually the longest sermon in the Bible. It runs there, John five into chapter six and seven. It's the longest sermon preached, but actually if you look at it, it's, it's almost a teaching sermon because there's so many points. But then the disciples would come. What about Mark chapter four and the parable of the sower sows the word? Very simple sermon. And then in private, the disciples would say, "Uh, what does this represent? And Jesus said, have you been with me this long? If you don't know this parable, you won't get all the other parables because this parable is the key to all parables. And he would begin to teach and expound unto them in private for hours what he had taught in 10 verses to the masses. You see that teaching is what is necessary to make stronger disciples. Because it gives them the skill set. Now a good teacher has to come along, a good pastor, and preach every once in a while to exhort you on what you've been taught to do and, and light your fire and rebuke you. But that's to get you to do what you already know how to do. Jesus did not preach the gospel to his own disciples. He taught them more deeply or expounded upon all the scriptures that concerned himself. Notice that verse there again. He expounded unto them in all the scriptures beginning at Moses and all the prophets. All right, so Ezekiel, or Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Habakkuk, Hosea, all the way to Malachi. How long does it take for the Lord Jesus Christ to explain himself from Moses? That's Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Joshua. Joshua. And then hit Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Daniel, Habakkuk, Nahum, Obadiah. How long do you think that would take Jesus to explain himself from all of those scriptures to his disciples? And can you preach Nahum, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Malachi? Can you, you gotta teach, you can't preach those. I want you to see that in private, To make disciples, you have to teach. I can't see Jesus Christ saying, let's look at the minor prophet. They didn't call him minor prophet. Let's look at the prophet Obadiah and then yell at them for 45 minutes out of the scroll of Obadiah. I don't see it. Expounding. That's also the same thing of hermeneutically exposition, exegeting. That's what Jesus Christ did. Every minister is supposed to be like Jesus Christ. A modern preacher would have just yelled at the disciples for 45 minutes. Paul understood the difference between preaching and teaching and told us what they can do. Colossians 1.28, whom we preach, Jesus, warning every man. Notice preaching does a good job of warning. And teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Preaching is effective at warning. and Teaching is used to impart wisdom. Combined, they work to perfect the saints edification, exhortation. And a good exhorter doesn't teach. They exhort. Miss Sherry is with us today. She is not a teacher in our midst. She's an exhorter. She just, she'll go grab some verses, but she'll, then she'll just explode upon them and exhort upon them to build your faith or to warn you. But teaching bogs down and slows down, and it really gets to the, the, the quick and the nitty-gritty of what needs to be communicated. Pastors or teacher feeders, Again, the Lord sends me to Africa a lot. Everything we do in Africa is about pastoral training. So this is this subject here is one of the. I would humbly say this is my best subject in helping the developing world church. The biggest problem I see in the developing world. I don't see this in European churches. They do a lot of teaching in the European churches. They're westernized. They're educated. They get it, and they have strong core groups. But in the third world, they just they're just so emotional. They're so immature. They just they like the hype. And so it's unfortunate. In his post resurrection discourse to Peter, Jesus ties loving God with feeding his sheep. Simon, son of Jonas, he doesn't call him Peter. He's not exactly a rock. He's being restored at this point after betraying the Lord or denying him three times. Lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. You see, if a, as a pastor, if you love God's people, you have to feed them. The word for feed in these three verses is poimano, or to pastor. Pastors are feeders. Jeremiah prophesied about a pastor's job description. I will give you pastors according to my heart who shall feed you with knowledge of God and his law and understanding prudence and prosperity. Pastors feed. Now, you don't feed God's people with a fire hose. That's preaching. If if nothing else, pastors should feed God's people with a gerbil water bottle. Everybody familiar with the gerbil or the hamster water bottle? A little bottle, a little metal tube comes down. There's a little ball bearing in there. And the gerbil has to come up and push that ball with his tongue to make water come out. Or you could get the water hose and hose down Lenny the hamster and half drown him. And he'd say, boy, that was an awesome service. What'd you learn? Water's wet. How much did it get in you? Not a bit, but boy, aren't I wet right now. Now, you have to, as a pastor, be a lot more strategic and a lot more accurate. You steer your church through teaching. It's like teaching lays the bricks of the yellow brick road. Teaching paves the way for the church to travel. And if all you do is yell and scream, you just go in circles like a whirling dervish. (laughs) The God-sent pastor will feed the sheep with knowledge and understanding any pastor who is not feeding the people knowledge and understanding will not be fulfilling God's assignment. And I would add, consequently, they'll be frustrated. They'll complain about the quality of their church. They'll complain about the health of the church. They'll complain they're not tithing. They'll complain they're not faithful. They'll complain they make too many excuses. Well, that's your fault, pastor. Teach against it. And if you have to, every four or five sermons, throw a preaching sermon against it. I also notice this. When preachers preach, they don't preach in series. Their sermons are like fireworks so that they go up poof, and then they move on to something else. You can't develop a strong flock without teaching in series because the sheep don't get it the first time they heard it. The power of pastoring is repetition. Jesus said to his disciples, again, I say unto you, how did he how did he make full time apostles out of guys he only had for three and a half years? He taught them every day the same stuff over and over and over again. It's like the U.S. military. They take 18-year-old selfish, snot-nosed brats, shave their head, and in six months they have a soldier out of them because they teach them and drill them and instruct them 24 hours a day. They yell at them in between teaching and instructing them. I can't imagine, you know, when they learn how to break down an M16, they're not yelled at. They're given instructional courses, and then they practice, and then they go to the range, and then they're yelled at. You maggot! Or well, I'm sure a lot more colorful words than that. <laughs> Things that aren't appropriate for the, the gospel microphone. <laughs> the New Testament commands pastors to do the same thing. Acts twenty twenty eight says, "Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers." That's the Greek word episkopos or bishop. To feed, poimen. That's the word pastor. Here you see that every pastor is a pastor bishop. Every pastor oversees and feeds. Uh, we don't use the term bishop in our circles, but I am technically a bishop. I oversee this church and I pastor. We have under bishops. Our elders are technically elders are technically bishops. They help oversee the flock too. And we might even go so far as to say our department heads are micro bishops because they oversee their departments and they are delegated authority with the ability to instruct and correct and to guide. That's a bishop. But there is a principal bishop or principal of the flock. And that would be the pastor or me in this church. To feed the church of God. Notice there, feeding, feeding. Same word for pastor. The church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. First Peter five two reverses the two. He says, "Feed first the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight, episcopos." So Acts says, "Episcopos, poimen." First Peter says, "Poimen, episcopos." Feed and oversee, oversee and feed. That's the twofold job of the pastor. I oversee you, your spiritual health, the condition of the church, the administrations, the governments, and then my job on service time is to feed. What I do outside of service time is I oversee. And what I oversee, I adjust my sermons to help tweak and correct and guide and lead and steer. And then when I'm done, I go back to overseeing. So it works. And to me, this is one of my, humbly I say, one of my greatest understandings and gifts is administration and governance. To me, how the kingdom works is so easy. And I can step into a church and realize, wow, this church needs about six months of teaching on governments, administrations, and how the pastor's office runs. And the church would run so much more smoothly. It's like a good mechanic. You can listen to your car, this, this, and this. Our post office lady, her car broke down at a driveway yesterday. So we went out there to help her, and she turned the car over, nothing, and we listened to some noises, and I said, well, that's about the extent of my uh, mechanical know-how. You got lights, so you got things. It's not even turning over, so it's probably your starter, and it's too hot or something, but other than that, I don't know, and it's about to rain. You need a phone? That's all I could do, and that's how some pastors are. All they know is their church won't start, and if they just take some time, maybe they could learn to take it further. Episcopos means to oversee or superintend. Poyman means to feed, teach. The New Testament pastor has a twofold commission from Jesus Christ teach and oversee, not oversee and yell. Not oversee and yell. Teaching is the number one way pastors feed and grow their sheep. Teaching is the number one way pastors feed and grow their sheep. When I'm in Africa, I make the point. African school system is amazing. The British have done an immaculate job in the, in the Anglophone countries of, of doing just such proper education. I, I would honestly wish I could raise my kids in Africa so they could get the African education. The kids, when they're called upon, they stand up to give their answer. They raise their hand. When they're called upon, they stand up, and they politely curtsy. They all wear uniforms. They live in bush huts. They wear uniforms to school, and, and They walk everywhere. So even the pastors, when, they, when they're called upon, when we do question and answer, they'll stand up just like they did when they were five years old and ten years old. It's the coolest thing. I absolutely love the culture. I asked them, I said, when you learned mathematics, did your mathematician teacher yell at you? Two plus two is four. Four times four is 60. Repeat after me, you bunch of maggot sheep. And they all laughed. No. I said, but did you learn math? Yes. Do you still understand it? Yes. So why are you yelling at your sheep? When they taught you Swahili or Lugandan or English, did they yell at you how to conjugate a verb? Swim, 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 swimming. Swim, 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 swimming. Come on, close, we can learn it. Swim, 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 swimming. And they laugh hysterically because they know that's stupid. I said, Then why are you trying to pasture your sheep that way? All you're doing is deafening their ears and getting them excited about swim, 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 swimming. I have been in churches where the preacher or the pastor isn't a pastor, he's a preacher, and he yells at them. And the second he starts into his little pre-programmed rant, he's the lily of the valley, the fairest of 10,000, the Lamb of God, the balm of Gilead. They start cheering and hooping and hollering, and they know that he's the Lamb of God and the balm of Gilead and the fairest of 10,000, the ancient of days, but they don't have a clue what any of that means or where to find it in the Bible because they've not been taught. So it's Pavlovian pastoring. The second pastor gets excited, we get excited, but we have no depth of Christian root. But if you're a well-taught church, all you have to say is God is gonna move today because we're gonna declare the word. And if you're taught, you're like, yeah. (laughs) Heart's just geared down and engaged. We didn't have to yell about anything. I'm all for yelling when it's anointed of God. But you, if you want to, you can make a religious rut out of yelling. It used to be anointed, and so you think it still is, but it may not necessarily be the case. We got to keep going here. I'm already two minutes over. Can you imagine school children learning history and mathematics at the feet of an evangelist? Can you learn philosophy or a second language with the instructing yelling at you for forty-five minutes? <laughs> Part of the bishop-elder-servant's requirement list is the ability and eagerness to teach. And a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Even the bishop-servant, elder, leader, helper in a church has to have a teaching ability. If you're going to lead in the body of Christ, you have to have a teaching ability. Can you imagine, Mr. Gregg, teaching band yelling at the kids? (laughs) Yelling chromatic scales. This is teaching trombone or any of the instruments you I know you teach. Yet you can't do it. It's too much pressure. I'm trying. I can't blow on this woodwind with you yelling at me. To me it's just so obvious and so simple. But we get into hurtful religious habits. Will you come, brother? (laughs) Will you come? Will you come? I won't go back into it. <laughs> Paul told young Pastor Timothy to command, exhort, and teach. Command, exhort, and teach. Paul also expected every believer to grow up and become a teacher. Disciples are reproduced by teaching those who can then go and teach others. Notice all this emphasis on teaching, 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 teaching. Second 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to yell and scream it at others. Now, let me give you my two cents worth, and I've observed this. There is the genuine office and anointing to preach and exhort. But I've also observed that typically when a minister doesn't have enough to say, he just ends up yelling. When he doesn't know the scriptures, when he doesn't know doctrine, when he doesn't know the Bible as he ought, when he can't prove his point from six other scriptures and let God speak for himself, he resorts to yelling, and it becomes a hurtful habit. And when you are anointed to preach, it doesn't take but 15 or 20, 30 minutes to preach and be done and go on. Even I've observed even with me when the preach comes on me, it only lasts 10 or 15 minutes and then we, we finally calm back down and the anointing shifts and either we transition to an altar call, laying hands, or we exhort or we lift our hands and pray and see what else the Lord wants to do. But hurtful habits, that's what the church gets into. Even grace is a teacher. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Notice the grace of God teaches us. Notice that you can't just preach this. You have to teach to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly lust, teaching that we should live soberly, to live righteously, to live godly in this present world. That's a lot of teaching. I mean, that's a good five-point sermon right there. Teach what it means to do all five of those points. Finally, teaching sound doctrine is the only way to combat false doctrine. Most false doctrine grows in bad preaching. The only way to combat that is to teach line upon line. You can't just preach against it. You may have to go and line upon line disprove the false doctrine. You can't just yell and say, don't listen to this preacher, he's a heretic. Heretic, I say. Will he come? Will he come? (laughs) You have to teach line upon line to say, why is he a heretic? That way you don't attack the man. You attack the message because a man may have a heretical doctrine, but not all of his doctrine's heresy. The Bible warns of false teachers, not false evangelists. It's very difficult to disarm false doctrine with fiery preaching. You must combat it with sound teaching, line upon line, precept upon precept teaching. Amen. Hopefully we've learned something And uh, I pray that this lesson will help preachers in the future, ministers, pastors, and we'll put this on our pod school so that folks can download it all over the world and be encouraged by it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for this lesson on building sound doctrine and teaching versus preaching. Help us, all of us, even those that aren't called to full-time ministry, to avoid, avoid hurtful ministry habits, hurtful pulpit habits. And may we stay pure and right with you. I thank you, Lord, for helping us.